We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount as we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've covered the Beatitudes, so Jesus sat down on the mountaintop to teach his disciples. There's a huge multitude, and anyone that wants to come and hear, they can hear, but we know he's really targeting disciples, people who are serious about following him and letting him be their Lord and Savior. And so we saw the Beatitudes, we saw salt and light, and then last week we saw that Jesus fulfills the law of Moses from the Old Testament, or the law of God as it's called, and, and the law of Moses, and then also the prophets. So we talked about that last week in our topical, and it was um, very encouraging to know that we're saved by grace, and the Lord, Jesus fulfills those things, and then he imparts that, his righteousness to us, and he died on the cross for our sins to take away our guilt, but he imparts his righteousness to us through faith in him uh, positionally. And then by the Spirit, he helps us to live for him practically. And so with that in mind, as we come to verse 21, we're going to go through five, say, five sayings where he says, you've heard it said of old. So he's quoting the law. So now he's going to quote the law. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. So he's taking for them, the Jewish people, contextually, they would have had the understanding of the Torah or the law of Moses, the law of God, and a couple of these are the Ten Commandments and other ones are just that were there in the law between Genesis and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And he says things at how they would have understood it. So I say, hey, you heard it said this way, but I say to you. So he's going to take, because he just said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're coming up short. So he's already shown that outward religion is of no value before the Lord. And so now we know he's always drawing people to himself. So now he's going to take the disciples deeper to understand it's not what we see the exterior, but it's really interior and the heart that the Lord's going after. And so tonight we're going to go through these five statements. You've heard it said. And then there's a parenthetical one for adultery and marriage as well. And so we'll get that as well on divorce. But we're going we're gonna to go through them verse by verse. And so we pick it up tonight beginning with this whole idea. But, uh, but I say to you, that's the key phrase. That's our topic tonight. But I say to you. So Jesus wants us to go deeper. There's something more than what we think of just exterior religion. There's another gear. There's kingdom character. And Jesus teaches it. And Jesus lived it. And he empowers us to be it by his spirit. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. So this first one, you've heard it said, comes, of course, from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. The idea of premeditatedly killing someone and taking their life from them, which is just, 
just horrific to really even think of, whether it's violent crime that we're aware of that might happen in a, a civil society where people do violence, and that's why you have law enforcement and the judicial system and prison system and all that stuff. And it's just, it's a reality that people kill people premeditatively, murder. And sometimes people kill people by accident. Uh, some people kill people through foolishness and folly, like a DUI, and you've had previous DUIs, and then you've, you've already got that against you, and then on your fourth DUI, you kill people, and you hit them in a traffic accident, and you kill some teenagers, and you're being tried for second-degree murder. So we know in our culture, in our society, there's various degrees of murder, how premeditated it was, or the accountability of it, or even in the law of God, we see manslaughter, where they had the cities of refuge, where you could go when someone wanted to avenge a death, that you could go there and have a trial, if you will, to determine it really was an accident, it wasn't premeditated, it was just a horrible accident, and the Lord and cultures draw a distinction between death by accident versus premeditated. But this is murder. We know that most murders occur, people killing people they know. Four out of five, for sure. The random murder is more random. Most people that are murdered are murdered by someone they know for various reasons. Could be a coworker, could be a former relationship, uh, it could be usually one of those two, or a neighbor, uh, a building animosity between neighbors. A good friend of mine, Randall Kim, who I competed against in pro surfing back in the 80s, uh, he was the Billabong rep. He was a rep for Billabong, Hawaii, and he was murdered in cold blood along with his wife over the parking space in front of their house. It was an ongoing dispute with a neighbor, and it was going back and forth, and you just never know. This is why your wife tells you guys, diffuse the situation, don't accentuate the situation. And it's just so sad when I heard that Randall Kim was and his wife were killed. They were, they were killed by over the parking. Just, you know, and so you think, who would kill over that? Well, someone did. And we just know that's the way it goes sometimes. So this is a serious subject. And obviously, those of us in here, your church on Saturday night, you're not waking up saying, I want to kill somebody. But people do certain things to other people, and you do get a thought like, I'd at least like to get revenge on that person or see some justice on that person, or especially to, depending upon the degree by which they've hurt you, then you would feel that. You could feel certain ways, and you, it gets anger, and then it goes from there. The Bible tells us not to let the sun go down on your anger, but to work through it. I think it's safe to say on behalf of all of, us, all of us who've been living more than three decades, I'd say we're 30 plus, we all know there's, in the human journey, there's just people that you've been so angry, so frustrated, so exasperated with them that you, you can't sleep, you know, and, and, and if you don't work through that, even in Jesus' name, you get, you get full of maliciousness and you be filled with malice and bitterness and it'll destroy you. What Jesus says here, it's interesting because it says that it, if you, you have the anger, then it says you say this and then you say that. It's progressive. And we know that out of the abundance of a heart does a woman speak or a man speak. So we know our words can reveal a lot about us. Because if you listen to the frequency and the cadence of what's coming out of your mouth, that's coming out of your heart. And... Your, your words will reveal where your heart's at. 
So Jesus here, it's, it's, you, you have this thing, this anger, and your words will reveal it progressively. So watch your words. Watch your words. Because the words are the prelude to violent actions so often in the human experience. So he says the real issue here is it just gets worse and worse. So therefore, what you need to do is not play church or religion. Leave your gift on the altar and make this right. Go be reconciled to this person. Uh, go, be, go your way, be reconciled. Agree with them, lest it gets worse. And that's really how anger and, and wrath and malice is, isn't it? We know that. Like, If you don't recognize it, deal with it. Ask the Lord to help you with it day after day after day to work through it, maybe for years on a bitter divorce or for years on a financial loss of whatever, how bad it could have been. But you've only got so much time on this planet to work through it, and you have to work through it. Body of Christ, humanity, you have to work through it or it will destroy you. To be tempted for vengeance and wrath and malice is not unusual. But the disciple of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and work through it and be reconciled. That's the key. So, worship generation, the key is to make it right. As it says in Romans, as much as it's up to you, the peace be with all men. And however you can reconcile, you should reconcile. It's a sad thing in ministry for 35 years. I've done many memorials. I've been at memorials where people regret that they didn't reconcile and make things right with the person that passed away. Family members, bitterness with adult siblings over estates and trusts and wills, and sometimes people not talking to each other for 20 years over $500. Just, I've seen it. I speak from experience. I've seen it. Now, reconciliation is to your benefit as much as you can. Like it says in Romans, it's good for you. Ultimately, it benefits you and I when we make things right with people that we're angry with. It's to your own benefit, and it's to your own detriment if you don't. The human experience is so arduous and difficult at times, especially when there's deep hurt and pain, where there's anger and bitterness where you really could imagine taking someone's life. And it's, that's why it's so important to get it right away. In fact, I leave you at this point. Agree with your adversary quickly. Jesus said quickly. Make it right quickly. Because the longer it stirs, the more it grows like a cancer that's poison to the soul. Jesus said, make it right quickly. The anger, the bitterness, the wrath, the malice. Make it right quickly. And I would just say tonight, if there's someone that you have great malice toward that you can make right, man, see the day of the Lord and make it right. It's a higher character of a human being to make it right. Any fool can, can take vengeance. It's a higher character that glorifies God. And we're creating his image when we can make it right. The second thing we get is adultery. Verse 27, you've heard it was said that those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Again, this is straight out of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, okay, here we go, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I think I can speak for all of us and say this is one of the heaviest passages in the entire Bible. I mean, this is a, first of all, when you think of how many times Jesus taught things, and you know, we had the four gospels, and you look at the apostolic writings of the pastoral epistles and the book of Acts, you never get a hyperbole like this one. I mean, obviously Jesus isn't teaching us to poke our eyes out and cut our hands off. He's using hyperbole, but it is really strong hyperbole. And we realize the context is men toward women, but we have to be fair, it can be women toward men as well. Although it's more apt to go men lusting for women, women lust for men who are discontent in their marriage or discontent in life. And you know, there's quite a few chapters in Proverbs about women who do this but it is targeted in its context toward men. It's such a serious hyperbole. Just that alone, you just go like, whoa, this is serious. So in that culture, you know, the the men could just put away their wives for any reason and justify it. I won't go into all the history of it, but we know that's from the rabbinical writings. They could do that. I can't even imagine being married like that. I just can't even imagine a relationship like that. But that's how some of these things were. Sinful men have a way of justifying themselves. I should know because I see one when I look in the mirror. And so do you guys. And ladies, even women with a sinful nature, which you have, we do tend to justify ourselves. We want to do that. But this passage just destroys that. It just, there's nowhere to hide on this passage. And as I thought about this passage, and I've I'll be honest, when I was a teenager, really my late teens, early 20s, this was a passage that made me think I could never serve Jesus because I'm a lustful, I'm a lustful dude. And I'm going to have to cut my hand off and poke my eyes out. Like in my Catholic mind at the time, and not even a serious Catholic, but just in my weird, you know, Bob Marley, Carlos Santana, Catholic, hocus pocus kind of mixture of religions and some prosperity doctrine. I just like, I can't do this because, you know, like this is going to be a problem. But fear of failure shouldn't, fear of failure tomorrow shouldn't keep us from commitment to faithfulness today. Fear of failure tomorrow should not keep us from faithfulness today. And I've just known so many men and women who just don't even try and walk with the Lord because they're so afraid of the failures their lust and their eyes will get them into down the road. They just don't trust themselves and so they won't even try to serve the Lord. And it's like, I wouldn't worry about tomorrow. I worry about today. I mean, that's where the self-help groups really have it right. It's one day at a time. And if you just walk in purity one day at a time, then you'll get a second day and a third day, and then you get a week and a month, and you can build that up. And God's faithful to do that. He's for us to walk in purity, whether we're women or men. Paul told us to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ, and it's always a thought. And it's not a sin to be tempted, but it's sin when you embrace that, like the book of James says. And I realize, like, the devil wants to isolate you and think you're the only person that gets these kind of thoughts. No, he comes after everybody, like, 
Nebuchadnezzar, the battering ram. He'll lay siege to your mind. And he'll give you thoughts you can even thoughts that you wouldn't even think of. And the way you really know you wouldn't think of them is because you want to get rid of them and take them captive to the Lord. And it's a battle. And it's a it's a battle you need to fight. But this is what I was thinking about with marriage. There are so many wonderful passages in the Bible about healthy marriages. We see examples of healthy marriages in the Bible, in the Old Testament, beautiful marriages. We see in the book of Proverbs where there's these, well, Proverbs 31 is amazing, like what an amazing wife is like. But also Solomon there early on just is like, hey, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Have joy with her. Enjoy and embrace being married and the joy what marriage is. And I think that's really the key. What I often say in related to sports as a coach is the best defense is a great offense. You hear me say that quite often. You imposing, in a sense, the Lord's will or your will on a situation, you being on the offense is the best defense. Well, if you're proactively loving your wife, nurturing your wife, encouraging your wife, praying for your wife, thinking of your wife, and lifting her up and sanctifying her, as it says in Ephesians 5, you're not going to check your brain out and disqualify yourself from being the husband your wife wants you to be. It's hard to pray for someone, love somebody, and think of wonderful things you want to do for them, and then let it unravel when you go to work or uh, you know, on the weekend or something. So really, the strength of a marriage is to be proactively going after the best things in a marriage sincerely. I remember one time this couple at Big Calvary, Calvary Costa Mesa, came in. They'd been married like 20 years, and they wanted to get divorced. I've shared this story a few times, but just, it's so clear in my mind. You know, I met them in the sanctuary, and they came in the front office, and they, hey, Joey, you're the guy. You go in there. And, um, and they, were so, they were so upset with each other. Like, they, they literally, like, I mean, it was, man, it was serious. And I listened to them. And he, she mentioned randomly in this conversation, well, when I was a homecoming queen. Oh, homecoming queen. Okay, all right. And then they're talking, talking. He's like, well, you know, when I was a starting quarterback, I was like, in my mind, they're talking. I'm like, wait a minute. We got the high school quarterback and the homecoming queen. And I, and I, I let them speak and do all their stuff. And then I just said, you guys must have really been in love, right? Like, oh, yeah, we were so in love. Really? Yeah, we were so... You married each other. You've been married for 20 years? Yes. I was like, you, you gave your lives to each other. You've come 20 years on this journey. You were in love, and you can be in love, and you should be in love. And you just got to, like Jesus said, go back to your first love. You can do this. I don't know what they expected from me, because they were like 20 years older than me, at least, you know? And... Uh, but I was just like, wait a second, you're like homecoming queen, you're starting quarterback, you've shared it like, what, what are you doing? Why are we even here? You guys were, were you passionately in love? Oh, we were at one time. I'm like, well, then go find that passion. Go find it. Make your, make your life a beautiful rom-com with a happy ending, if you know what I mean, romance comedy, right? Like, make it a, make it a happy, like, you, this doesn't, this moment doesn't have to define who you are. You can turn this around. You were in love. Jesus said when we fall out of love with him, he said, return to your first love and do those things that are your first love. So it stands to reason in a struggling marriage, that's what you should do. The way to avoid lusting after other people is to be in love with the one you're married to. 
And the way to be in love with the one you're married to is to pray for them, to encourage them, and want to be with them. And think about ideas how you can, like, think about them and what you can do for them. And, and mar marriage is meant to be so beautiful and so special. And those who think it is and choose to make it such, well, that's exactly what they get. A beautiful, special marriage. And whether it's a first marriage or a second marriage or a third marriage, once you decide that you're all in and this is the way you want to be and make it beautiful and make it a work of art, then that's what you get to be. Now, obviously, lots of people get married, get divorced, and don't get remarried. And some of you are here tonight. This, there's nothing here meant to condemn you. We don't, build our, we don't beat ourselves up for a yesterday we can't change, right? So don't do that. Don't do that. And one final thought, it talks about divorce here, where it says, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, but if he di divorces except for his sexual morality, he causes her to commit adultery. The thing that jumps out at me is not so much that he causes her to commit adultery, but the phrase causes her. And again, in life, you'll see this, but in ministry, you see it a lot. There is a cause and effect of divorce. I'm a child of divorce. My wife is a child of divorce. There is a cause and effect of divorce. There's a cause and effect from infidelity on the marriage, on the children. There is a cause and effect. My sister and all of her challenges that she's had in her life and whatnot. My sister was, when I was 17, when my parents got divorced, my sister was 11. So it was really hard on her. And my parents had been married for 20 years. And both my parents were always plagued by guilt toward my sister. And Barbie learned, like many kids do, how to leverage that. She leveraged that guilt for benefits as she got older. And, you know, when Barbie said, oh, daddy, my dad's like, pull out the checkbook. Because he always felt guilty that, you know, she was the one. Me, he's like, you were just a selfish 17-year-old. You're on your own. My dad loves me, of course, but, like, it wasn't the same. There was a cause and effect. And it shows up. The shortcomings in marriage, they show up. And we know in the book of Genesis, we see the sins of the parents become reflected in the sins of the children. This is the key. Once you decide that there's a new beginning for you and where you're at in your marriage or how you're going to approach marriage, then you write your story. I don't have to... I don't have to my parents are alcoholics. I don't have to be an alcoholic. I chose to quit drinking 35 years ago. I chose never to have alcohol be a part of my marriage. And it's a great decision because life's hard enough when you can think straight. At least it is for me. Right? You don't, you, you know, you define, you define, you define. Once you accept responsibility and self-determination for your soul, for your purity, for your marriage, for your children, you, you define it. And you write that story. And if you don't like the way the story is going, say, I'm done with this book. This is done. We're going to write a new story. We're starting over. So for me, with the adultery, the key is to be proactively toward the purity and the things that you want to do anyways and why you're in love in the first place and the way God's designed us to be. If you choose the right thing and you keep your life on offense favorably, then you're going to avoid the wrong things that put you on defense disfavorably that cause a negative cause and effect on your marriage and the people you love and someone you loved enough to marry. And again, if you've experienced divorce and maybe you divorced someone or they divorced you and, and everyone, it, in the human experience, 
I've said this over again. I'm not surprised. People getting divorced doesn't surprise me. It, really what surprises me, people staying together the longer I've lived. Because you have to really humble yourself and serve others to really make it in marriage. You have to become more self-sacrificing as you get older. And once you're an empty nester, your wife's not messing around. Either shape up or figure it out. Because there's no more kids restraining this show right here. Get your act together. Because a marriage goes through seasons, just like your life. And you want to get stronger from glory to glory. There's a cause and effect for the negative, and there's a cause and effect for the positive. And that's my exhortation to us. Now we read on to the third one. The third one is your oaths, your words. So verse 33 Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. You younger people, listen to me carefully. The credibility, of your, the credibility of your words, the credibility of your words serves you well your entire lifetime. And as older people will tell you, when your word is valid, and when you speak, and it's valid to your spouses if you're married, and you speak, and it's valid to your children when they're younger, and when they're teenagers, and when they're adults, when you speak, and you say things, and you make commitments, and you keep those commitments of time, energy, and resources, you build equity, and you build the, the, the rarest of equities. It's an equity of credibility or a man of your word, and they are hard to find. And once you tarnish that, it's hard to reclaim it. With Jesus, everything is yes and amen. It's yes, yes, or it's no, no. There's no shot of turning with the Father of lights. So all the promises of God are yes and amen. So when I get up here and listen, there's four pillars of every service in my mind when I'm teaching. You know, it's the authority of the word of God and it's the promises of God is one of them and, the, and that we're all headed for eternity. That's another one. But in every cell of my body, no matter what passage of scripture I'm teaching, Nehemiah, Ezra, Matthew, whatever it could be, when I'm talking about the promises of God, I'm telling you, in every cell of my body, and that's a lot of them, I believe they're all yes and amen. And I believe there's no shadow of turning. When I, when I quote promises to you that all things work together for good, or he's coming again in the clouds with, in great glory, I mean it, and I believe it. Which is good for me, and it's good for you, because who wants a pastor in the pulpit doesn't believe the promises of God. But I really, truly believe the promises of God. If you're on your deathbed and you're going to go in the next 12 hours and I tell you Jesus is coming for you, he's promised it, he's going to come and he's, he's going to, you're receiving glory to put on, this mortal must put on immortality. I mean it. I'm not playing religion. I didn't get saved and called to ministry to, to play pastor. I believe those promises. When we're singing these songs with Jeff or Danny or Danny or Giovanna, whoever's leading us in worship, they're singing songs. We're singing songs of heaven and truth and power. And I'm singing because I, they're true and I believe them. 
our lives in Christ are built around Jesus being our chief cornerstone and the rock. And he's a sure rock, and we know that he will never, first of all, there's no skewed character in him. God is light, and there's no darkness at all. And we know that what he promises he'll bring to pass. And I may not know how all these things with his return, because I've been thinking about his return lately, like a lot of people. I'm like, okay, Matthew 24, Ezekiel, and this and that, and Zechariah. You know, like, how's it work? How's it look? You know, and I was like, oh, Megiddo, this, that, you know, Mount of Olives, and, you know, and, huh, you know, like, listen, he just said be watching and be ready so I can keep my theology simple. But he's coming back. He will reign. We just read right here. It's the, what did Jesus just call Call Jerusalem the city of the king. Who's the king? He's the king. He's the king, the great king. So we come here and we are 100% certain of the promises from Genesis to Revelation. And then we go out there and we reflect Christ in our home, in relationships, in our neighborhood, at work, in the community. So since our life is built around this consistent truth that God never changes, there's no shadow of turning, that's how we want to be. And if we've lost credibility in certain ways, we want to get it back. That famous financial book written 100 years ago, The Richest Man in Babylon, one of the principles that comes up there, it's like allegories, it's a fascinating book. It's one of the all-time bestsellers of the last 100 years. But uh, The Richest Man in Babylon tells a story where there was all this debt. He, he borrowed money from everybody, and he owed everybody money, and eventually he had to leave Babylon because he owed everybody money, and he couldn't run into anybody because he owed everybody money. And he promised to do this and promised to pay back that way. And we've all seen this person. We know this person. And he goes away to Syria and is sold into slavery, but eventually gets his freedom, comes back, and goes back to everyone who owes money and said, I'm going to restore it all and make it right. And that's one of the principles from the richest man in Babylon is that as you begin to make things right, you build credibility in those in strange relationships are restored. My sister's a classic example because my sister was in and out of jail owed lots of people lots of money, defaults and all kinds of bills. But as I settled her accounts, people were very happy to get part of something. Because we all know that part of something is better than all of nothing. And you making a sincere effort that way to make something straight that was crooked based upon your words is honorable. And credit card companies and I just, in ministry, I had some people tell me, like, well, the banks make so much money, the credit card people, they, they know they're charging, charging us 22% interest, and hey, if you want to try and negotiate with them, that's your business, switch to another card for 7.5% interest, well, you won't get that today, but that's your business. But when you put your name on a piece of paper, if you're going to borrow money from the banks on this credit card at this interest rate, then that's what you do. If you put down a deposit... And then you renege, then you say goodbye to the deposit. It goes to money heaven. Because it isn't about the money, it's about the heart. And it's so important that our words are credible. Not, there might be different standards for different people. And banks do settle. And they, they're desperate and they do certain things and whatever. But we're not being measured before the throne of God by Bank of America. We're being measured by the word of God and Jesus being our savior and being a disciple. It's to our benefit to hold ourselves accountable to our words being truth. And if our words are true and reliable, they become a compass that everyone can build their life around. The people we love, 
and the people that come and go in our life. They can know when you, as a woman, walk in the room that what you say is true and valid, and they can build their life around it. Because then when you share the gospel, since everything else is true and valid, you give credibility to the gospel because you're true and valid. And as a man of God, it's the same thing. That equity of credibility is just huge. And it's most huge not with the people closest to you, but the person you see in the mirror. Because if anything will raise your sense of self-worth in a positive way, it's going to be knowing, as Shakespeare said, to thy own self be true. And when we're true to our words, it's just this equity that has so much power and authority for time, and it sure shines in the day of the Lord in eternity. We don't need to swear by the gold of this or the Jerusalem and this and that and everything else. Man, less is more. When you can, when you, with surrounded by your generations of family or your peers and all these people, when you say something and it, everyone knows what you say comes to pass, man, that is the ultimate equity. It, it, it's kind of a, if you have purity, you will have that equity. It, it's just a great equity to have. It's something that happens in secret, but it was revealed publicly in how you carry yourself. So worship generation, man, well, he said there in verse 33, you've heard him say this, but he says, his response is, I take it deeper. Just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. We don't need to swear by Jerusalem or anything else. Just, just let everyone know that when you say this is the way it is, that's the way it is, and you're going to do it. You sign on the dotted line, you give the deposit, you pay this, and you're going to do it. You loan you borrowed money and you're going to pay it back and you're going to, if it's struggling, but you're going to say, let's do this, let's figure it out. Hold yourself accountable to a higher standard. Verse 38, now we get the fourth one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever stops you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your coat, your tunic, let him have your cloak also, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Well, this is an interesting one, because since the Bible tells us to be very careful about lending money, we got to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. But I don't want to take away from the power of this passage either. Because Jesus says, you've heard it said this, and the whole idea behind an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is to restrain retribution on the back end. So... The eye for an eye is just justice. It's, it's getting justice. It's retribution to get justice, but it's a restraint because instead of us getting an eye for an eye, when someone pokes one eye out, we want to take two of theirs out. So the whole idea is really a restraint, but it is retribution, justice. We want, ret we want justice that's proper retribution, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. So Jesus says, you've heard that in the Old Testament. You've heard that in the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, when someone slaps you on the cheek, give them the other cheek. Now, there's other things that he says here, but that phrase is one we in our culture, I think, are familiar with, right? How many times have we heard, turn the other cheek? That is hard to do, because there's a lot of bullies in the world, and they'll, they'll bully you, and they will, they'll slap you on the cheek, and it's hard. It's hard to turn the other cheek. How hard is it? Well, you'll know when you get slapped on the cheek. Because the natural woman, the natural man, doesn't want to turn to the other side. But the spiritual man and the spiritual woman 
can catch their breath and turn the cheek to the other side. And in doing so, we show that our standard of humanity and our quality of person is much higher than the average son of Adam and daughter of Eve. See, this is what really separates kingdom characteristics from the world. Any fool, any son of Adam, any daughter of Eve can be slapped on the cheek and respond with a slap on the cheek back. In God's kingdom, which is the one that matters, and in God's economy, which is the one that matters, on the day of the Lord, on the day of the Lord, what looks better? Taking this one and giving one back or taking this one and turning the other cheek. And in many cases, that will diffuse the situation. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, the ultimate thing to do with your enemies is turn them into your friends. And we find that sometimes when you turn the other cheek, that might be the very opportunity that turns things around and moves that situation favorably where that person is no longer your enemy but your friend. It doesn't always go that way. But again, it's about who you see in the mirror, who you live with, your person, and who you're going to be on the day of the Lord. See, we want to think about the finished product on the day of the Lord, when you stand before the Lord. The character attributes and the work of the Spirit in your life, we're thinking about the finished product, who you are on the day of the Lord. And if you really can complete this journey, and there is testimony, there's video replays of you getting this, however it might really happen, whether it's verbally or whatever, but and turn the other cheek, I'm telling you, for you and for me, on the day of the Lord, that's going to look a lot better. Anyone can just throw a haymaker in response. It's a higher quality human being. It's the quality of the kingdom human being that can turn the other cheek. Because that's what Jesus did. I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying I'm signing up for it. But I have learned when you turn the other cheek, well, I promise you this. If you turn the other cheek, I promise you your character is moving toward Christ. If you respond by clocking them in the other cheek, however you can, however you would, I cannot promise you fruit for the day of the Lord from that. But if you turn the other cheek, I can promise you fruit. And since fruit in eternity is stewardship and things entrusted to us in eternity, I promise you more in eternity by turning the cheek in time. But I can't turn the cheek for you. You can't turn the cheek for me. And you can't go 10 years in the human experience without someone clocking you on the cheek one way or another. So if you feel like you failed opportunities in the past, you might, you might be certain if you live long enough, you'll get another one in the future. But there's, there's a higher quality human. There's a spirit-filled woman that can do that, and there's a spirit-filled man that can do that, and that's what we aspire to. And then the last one is here in verse 43. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
So now here he's quoting a couple Old Testament passages from the law, which is really a distinction of cultures, especially the Jews and the Gentiles. So you love your neighbor, the Jew, because they're your brother. The Gentiles, you'll hate them because they're going to try and destroy you and they're your enemy. But in the gospel, in the New Testament, we understand that the gospel is the good news for all nations, that Jesus died for all people. I just love this phrase here where it says, do, the, do good, verse 44. Do good to those who hate you. It's kind of like turning the other cheek, but it's a little bit different. Turning the other cheek is not responding in wrath. Doing good to those who hate you is initiating grace. See the difference? See, if you get popped in the chops and you don't respond, that's, that's having mercy, especially if you could respond and make it worse on them than made it on you. But to do good to those who hate you is really grace. Like now you're taking the initiative. They didn't pop you in the chops or crack you one on the cheek, but you're, you're initiating a good thing. You're doing good for them. And it's, it's always a good thing to do good things for others, including your enemies. You can never go wrong in doing good before the eyes of the Lord and the human experience. You can definitely go wrong in doing bad. And so I just love how Jesus said it's a higher standard. It's just a higher standard, worship generation. That's what Jesus is teaching here, that with the murder and, and the temptation for anger and hatred, it's just, you got to get after it. With adultery, you got to guard your heart and be going for the right things so you avoid the wrong things. With our word, it needs to be credible. We don't need to swear on this and swear on that. Yes is yes, and it's the greatest of all equities in your life to have that credibility with people, your word. And then turning the other cheek, it shows that we don't need to avenge ourselves. We trust the Lord to bring justice. And we know, well, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, you can avenge yourself, but God can do a much better job. So it's better to let him just do it. And I, I always remember him saying, I'm like, well, that makes sense to me. And so I would just encourage us yet again tonight on this final thing with loving your enemies. This is what separates us from the world. I'm not saying it's easy to do. In fact, I'm saying it's quite hard to do. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And through humility and dependency upon the Lord and empowerment by his spirit, he'll see us through. Because I promise you this. We know that Jesus Christ is this person. Jesus Christ is perfect and did those things that always pleased the Father. So this description, he fulfilled. He did it. And we know that he gives us his, his spirit and his power to fulfill the things he has for us. So though we may never reach perfection in this life, it's not a bad idea to esteem to improve on all these things on a daily basis, right? Wouldn't we agree? Wouldn't we agree we want to move toward glory to glory? And so five things of what you heard this, but now it's this is what I really say to you, and it goes deeper. And it goes deeper because it's a higher quality human, and it's the character of God. And so, Lord, help us to be that person as we continue our journey to the last day. Yes, and amen.